Hello out there, I'm Whitney. And I'm Will. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is Episode 7, The Path of the Righteous Man. We'll discuss the straightforward archetypal hero figure in superhero stories. What kind of character gets to be a hero, what their motivations are and how they act on them, and what these characters mean to people. Hey everybody, welcome back to Yelling About Superheroes. Hey there folks. Yeah, and this week we're going to do a little bit of franchise jumping and talk about a trope that we see in both Marvel and DC characters. And even some other characters from outside of them, although I don't think we have any specifically listed out. I can't think of any at the moment. Yeah, but the specific uh, trope we're going to be talking about today is a pretty simple one, actually. It's just the hero. You know, the good guy in a really terrible world. Um, How they function, what sort of moral systems they use, how they like rely on those moral systems in worlds that subscribe to none overall. Things like that. And it's not just any superhero, but we're specifically looking at characters who are almost archetypally morally upstanding. The sort who have does the right thing as a primary character trait. Yeah, the kind of character who has a reputation for being a sort of moral bastion of whatever team they might be on. So mm-hmm. like Captain America would be the obvious example. I think we're also going to talk about Superman. Superman is probably the single most iconic example of this character, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like you know more about Superman than I do. I really just started reading Superman stuff proper like today. So I don't know if you want to start by like elaborating on that. Yeah, it's not incredibly complex a topic, I think. Like, Superman is more emblematic of it than most, just in that he is almost supernaturally able to make the right decisions, do the right thing, you know, to help people on pretty much every level. Yeah, like, like his early comics specifically introduce him like every single time as, you know, champion of the oppressed or whatever, something yeah. along those lines. Well, the early comics are interesting in that because <laughs> I think he actually has a little bit less of this character trait. He threatens people a lot more. And yeah, he goes hard. Yeah. Like his character, I think, is a lot less established at that point. That's fair. Um, and I think his like particular morality is something that developed as time went on later. Yeah, where would you say he gets his moral compass? Does it come more from, like, his Earth parents, you know, that wholesome corn-fed Kansas upbringing, or is it more of the purpose that his Krypton parents gave him when they, you know, shot him off into space? Where does all that come from? Where does his moral system come from, do you think? That's a really interesting question, actually. You know, I feel like it kind of comes from... Everything you mentioned, as well as just more than that. So, I mean, he has those two separate parental influences. Mm-hmm. He has his biological parents, Jorel, his father, and his mother, whose name I don't know. I don't remember either. And even though he never meets them, and he only gets like messages from his father years and years <laughs> later. Yeah, anybody else remembering Russell Crowe appearing from around corners in Man of Steel? But go on. Yeah, Jor-El basically almost gives him this call to action remotely. He explains the background and 
why he sent Superman there, and also that he could be a sort of beacon of hope for humanity and almost a guiding light of hope and protection and all that. Okay. Um, which is absolutely something that Superman does and is. He definitely takes that to heart. But at the same time, he also has, I think even more influential, is definitely his upbringing, you know, his parents, Martha and Jonathan Kent. Martha, that was her name. I couldn't remember. Why do you say that name? Oh my god. Anyway, carry on. And they are, you know, just this old farmer couple out in Kansas who find Clark Grayson as their own. And they're very much incarnations of the idealized small-town American life, which conceptually the idealized rural America as being more virtuous than people in cities is not something I would personally like very much as a (laughs) concept. But it's absolutely something that's in effect with Superman, and I think it works for the character. And it also kind of keeps him humble, I guess you could say. You know, his parents were aware at least a little bit of his extraterrestrial origin. Mm-hmm. But the way they raise him, they don't raise him in any way to cast him apart as different. He's still like Clark Kent is what he thinks of himself as. He doesn't think of himself as some alien outsider, you know, with good reason. And in that way, he kind of keeps himself humble and thinks of himself as being, for all intents and purposes, as human as anyone else. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I, I kind of figured his particular system of morality might come from like both sets of parents in a sense. And what you yeah. said about um, Jor-El sending him on this mission to be this beacon for humanity or whatever. We were talking earlier today about Superman kind of being a Moses figure. And that was very much, I think, part of his inspiration. Um, both his creators were young Jewish men. And Superman was very much, I think, created to reflect the Jewish immigrant experience of the early part of the 20th century. So it really yeah. makes sense that that's like that would be an influence on him. And that's something like yeah, Judaism metatextually influences a lot of, especially the early superheroes, I think, which I've talked about before in the context of Captain America. But I yeah. think it definitely affected Superman too, for sure. Like just those principles. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about like the Jewish immigrant experience or anything, but the parallels to Moses are definitely pretty obvious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely those things, and I think Superman also has that kind of personality regardless. Built up, of course, by his both sets of parents, but I think he is just generally the kind of guy who does the right thing innately. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of his defining traits. And one interesting interpretation is it's not a power that gets openly discussed a lot, and it's also something that kind of depends on the particular context of the story. But one of the powers that Superman does have is super hearing that can basically hear everything in the world. Yeah, I, they kind of touched on that in the issues of All-Star Superman I was reading. They definitely mentioned that once or twice. Yeah, because he can hear basically everything. There's actually a scene in Superman Returns where that was a movie from... 2006. 2006? I think it might have been even earlier than that. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Last Superman movie published before Man of Steel, I think. <laughs> and there's a scene in there where he goes up into the upper atmosphere or something with Lois. Yeah. And there's a bit where he just, they're like talking, she's, and he's like, what do you hear? And she's like, nothing, because they're in space. 
she's like, what do you hear? And he's like, everything. And it just plays bits of audio that he's picking up. And he yeah, can just hear... Seen that movie. He can basically hear everything around the world. And it's almost like a universal source of empathy, I would say. Yeah, like a, he can hear everybody who needs help crying for help, in a sense. Pretty much. And I think that would definitely contribute to his particular powers and it's actually implied in all-star superman by grant morrison which spoiler alert if you haven't read that at the end of that story he's fighting lex luthor who temporarily gets all of his powers and there's a bit where it's heavily implied at least that luthor getting superman's super hearing is what finally turns him around from his constant criminal jackassery (laughs) that's a good way to put it I may have missed that. That was. It's something I've heard before, but I think it's more like something that you can interpret it as, but it's not necessarily explicitly yeah. called out. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, okay, I've thought about the same sort of superpower in relation to Daredevil, actually, especially like mm. season one Daredevil. Season two Daredevil is kind of a dick. I have like on the Netflix series. It's a Netflix series, yeah. Or yeah, because two... he does. It's described that his initial thing that gets him to become Daredevil is him like hearing some guy assaulting his wife or something yeah yeah and then he goes out after him because he hears it and he can't stand to not do anything about it yeah exactly and okay i don't want to name names or i actually don't remember who wrote this review of one season one episode i don't want to name the publication i don't want to pick a fight but basically this person was completely wrong they were claiming that guilt is what fueled matt to become the daredevil and it's just like, that, that's totally not how I saw it at all. I definitely read it as guilt over accidentally causing his father's death, keeping Matt from fighting and becoming Daredevil for so long. And then once he actually, you know, put on the mask and started beating up people who had it coming to them, then what was fueling him was was empathy. Exactly. Hearing people's cries for help and actually identifying with their pain and doing something to relieve that pain. That's that interesting. is absolutely what I saw as underpinning Matt's actions in season one. Season two. Oh my god, I I haven't finished I've, season two, honestly. Cause I he's just become so much more of a mess, honestly. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, part of Daredevil's motivation. I honestly think that Daredevil is probably significantly less mentally healthy than like <laughs> Superman or Captain America yeah. is. And to be fair, I also wonder if Catholic guilt isn't legitimately like playing into things for him. I mean it's kind of, it's like a theme of the series. To yeah, some well, I mean extent. I mean obviously, yeah. No, and, and Daredevil I think is an interesting case. I feel like season one Netflix Daredevil specifically kind of falls into this trope of the morally upstanding person trying to do right in a terrible world that's there's definitely some of that i feel like it's interesting with daredevil because he doesn't i don't think he has the trait that superman and captain america have in a lot of cases where they can pretty much always make the most compassionate decision you could say yeah something i was going to point out the interesting thing about matt murdoch is that I think he's more concerned than any of the other heroes we have, like, in this outline that we drew up. He's more concerned than any of them are about actually, like, being in service of the law. Yeah, he very much, I think, views himself as 
outside the law, but kind of an accessory to it, especially again in season one. Yeah, which definitely makes sense as a lawyer. But well, no, exactly. But that, I feel like he's an exception to the general rule of like the characters we've gathered here, because there's very much this sort of three part justice system in superhero stories where the superhero has to work outside the confines of law and order because the government, the state apparatus, isn't powerful enough to actually catch all so, the criminals and punish all the wrongdoings. Yeah, so, like the mundane police. Yeah, um, exactly. And if the superhero with, was, like, I guess, fettered by institutional constraints, then they wouldn't be able to adequately like do their jobs. But ultimately, they always have to function outside that system. They're always that like separate entity. And Daredevil, mm. I think, very much, at least again in season one, wants to conceptualize himself as more subservient to the overall letter of the law itself. Even if he doesn't view himself as being subservient to or a servant of law enforcement or government institutions he still very much views himself as working more with them than i think other heroes would that is maybe that's because he's slightly like less powerful than like say captain america or wonder woman sure and because he's a lawyer he has a lot more tendencies towards being lawful good i wouldn't say he's entirely a lawful good but he has aspirations in that direction that influence his his you know mindset and conduct so much. So that's why he's really interesting in that respect compared to these guys in particular. And it creates an interesting paradox where no matter how much he's trying to work in support of the law, what he's doing is still very fundamentally totally illegal. I mean, yes, in terms of technically he is very much going against law enforcement by taking the law into his hands. The thing about that three-part system of justice in these stories only really works if the superhero and the state apparatus alike are all serving that higher purpose of justice and the law and stuff. People who enforce the law might be flawed, but the system only works if the law itself and the concepts of justice and equanimity, I don't even know if I'm using that word right, but whatever, if they're treated as like the greater good. It's a complicated system of ethics that we're working with here that superhero stories have had to grapple with as long as they've been a thing, pretty much. And then there's also cases where some of these characters are talking about, like Captain America comes to mind especially where when he feels that the law is, as in the forces of law enforcement, are no longer aligned with what he considers to be the greater good, he will go against those. Yeah, exactly. Like, he says something in the Civil War movie to the effect of, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like something like, people have agendas and agendas change. He doesn't Mm. trust people more than he trusts ideals which I think he, you know oh I Captain America is going against the government must be a Tuesday he trusts I think individual people but he doesn't trust institutions yes and honestly like and after the, what happened with Hydra he's completely yeah, in justified MC, in that let's be real in the MCU especially he has very good reasons not to trust institutions yeah the time exactly, the world exactly. Around. and then he's also got the thing where he says like when I see a situation pointed south I can't ignore it sometimes I wish I could and yeah, then Tony that's right. and, and Tony rightfully calls him out like, "No, you don't." And he's like, "No, I don't." And 
Okay, yeah, yeah that's, that is a fair assessment. Tony Stark is actually right about something and I think, related for once in his life. And I think that's almost a common thread of all of these characters, is that when they see, like, suffering or hardship that they have the chance yeah. to prevent... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think opportunity is necessarily the best way to phrase it, but I, I do yeah. see what you're saying. When they see, like, you know, suffering or hardship or anything that is within their power to prevent, they prevent it, like... In they, a lot of cases, Spider-Man philosophy. Yeah, I was going to that. Like in a lot of cases, they don't even consider it to be an option. Spider-Man. None of them wish they could care any less because caring less would mean more people suffer, and that's just unthinkable. Yeah, and Spider-Man like really embodies this. His thing with great power comes great responsibility is cliche at this point, but it's yeah, still mean. But I think that is the core of most of these characters in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think it's interesting with Spider-Man, especially because he's powerful, but he's really a lot less powerful than like Superman or Captain America is. And hmm, yeah, he in a lot of ways gets opened up to a lot of potential suffering and hardship himself because of the things he does. Yeah, like, and mm-hmm. it's I think it's different with him than with. A character like Captain America or Superman or Wonder Woman because he doesn't have any kind of support structure, basically. That's a fair assessment, I think, yeah. He doesn't have that support system and or he's not, you know, otherwise untouchable and invincible. Like, yeah, yeah. Like Superman and Wonder Woman are basically, for all intents and purposes, invincible. It takes a lot to fell them. You cannot say the same as Spider-Man, not really. Yeah, when Superman goes in to, even to stop a mugging, but also to, like, stop some mid-level supervillain, you know, Superman's not going to get hurt. Other people might, and that's why Superman's stepping in in the first place. Mm -hmm. But Superman himself is fine, you know? Like, maybe he gets late to his meeting with the Daily Beetle or something. (laughs) The Daily Planet, I mean. (laughs) You know, Spider-Man is like, Peter Parker gets hurt. Yeah. He's stepping in. He is in a very real way, putting his life and his safety on the line more so than a lot of these characters. Yeah. But I'd say he... that's something Daredevil Daredevil does also, too. absolutely. Oh my god, that's also he gets there. so beat up. It's kind of... Yeah, I want to give like a particular shout out to like just the Tom Holland MCU Spider-Man. For just... <laughs> you always do, though. Because he's he... so good. Yeah, he's just... It starts in Civil War, I think. They don't necessarily flesh it out a lot, but he, you know, he says, like, when something bad happens and you could have stopped it, it happens because of you. And that's that's basically just the power of responsibility thing rephrased. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting that Spider-Man has a very specific inciting thing that mm-hmm. brings him to this philosophy. Yeah, Which, yeah. you know, most of these characters don't really have. Like, they've got backstories, but Spider-Man... I would say Superman kind of has that same sort of thing, because the inciting incident that shapes his entire character is, you know, being launched into the space with this, like, edict from his father. So I would say there are parallels there, but do go on. But Superman, like, that's not an event he remembers. That's That's just... true. That's true. You raise a very good point You know, that's something he learns about secondhand, basically, because he was a baby when that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no, like, single event in his backstory that is clearly framed as, like, 
this is why he does what he yeah. does. Not like, oh, Batman saw his parents die or anything. Yeah, Batman has an event like that. Although mm-hmm. Batman, I think, is... Actually, I want to circle back to Batman. Yeah, we'll remember that later. But I think like Spider-Man is unique in some ways because his Uncle Ben dying and him having been in a position to stop it and not stopping it. He was responsible for that, and now he has to do everything he can so that other people don't get hurt because of it. Yeah. It's... See, guilt feels him, sure. I wouldn't say guilt feels Matt Murdock. Not in this particular Netflix incarnation. But yeah, I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. And the Homecoming movie, even though they don't really talk about Uncle Ben at all, which is interesting to me, they still show that he still has this philosophy driving him because like the entire movie is basically just peter having decisions to make between and to be clear we're talking about homecoming here right yes okay. yes in Rather homecoming civil war. yeah okay. civil war is he's there but he's not really making a lot he's of just a chatty cathy yeah he's great but he's not driving the plot or any of the mm, no, actions really or anything isn't. anyway yes but in homecoming it's like basically the entire movie is a series of choices between peter using his powers for his own benefit or even just being a kid or whatever mm-hmm. going to a party or something even not spider-man related at all for his own enjoyment and the other choice is being spider-man to help people or to prevent something bad from happening mm-hmm And every single time he chooses to forego whatever fun thing he might have been able to do or whatever profit he might have been able to get, Mm -hmm. whatever benefit he could have had, he chooses every time to forego that to be Spider-Man and to help people. He's so good. He's great. I like him a lot. And I'm, I'm still not over him saving the vulture at the very end. Yeah, even then, like, he could have let the vulture die. He would have had to deal with him again. He wouldn't have had to deal with the consequences of the vulture knowing who he was. Even saving the vulture, he's choosing to do the right thing, mm-hmm. potentially to his own eventual uh, detriment. Yeah, and there's there and the something like, so refreshing about that, you know? Yeah, and yeah. honestly, like, this is more the case in the comics, but although it also happens in Homecoming... The world shits on Peter Parker all the fucking time. (laughs) Oh my god. You're not wrong, though. You really aren't. You know, like, there's just the trope of... He just refers to it as Parker luck. Oh god. Just... If something bad can happen to him, and most of the time it's just, like, little inconveniences, but it can also be, like... Like, you know, his pants sticking to his butt in that one... (laughs) Oh my god. But sometimes it's actually just really terrible tragedies in some respects. If there's something that can go wrong for him, it does. And, you know, sometimes he falters on it because he's not flawless. You know, there's times where he's given up and there's times where he's been completely desperate and downtrodden. But he's... Or just a weirdo a la, you know, Spider-Man 3. That's something else. (laughs) And he's always doing the right thing but he's still fallible in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways in ways that i think a lot of of these characters in a lot of cases aren't yeah i feel like when we see like captain america being realistically flawed it's like in an alternate universe setting or you know it's just revealed to not be the real captain america i'm thinking of like ultimate Mm. universe cap or like commie smasher cap because he's very much a symbol of american identity 
I feel like his flaws almost tend to get like retconned away because of that in order to it's, like keep Captain America that ideal of American goodness or That whatever, is, which is I, particularly interesting because we've talked about Captain America before, mm-hmm, yeah. but it is interesting and depending on how you interpret it, possibly disturbing. Yeah, he, I kind of find it disturbing. I will not Yeah, lie. that the character who is symbolically so closely linked to America is also written as the character who is morally pretty much infallible in a lot of ways. Although I will say... Slash in a lot of cases. Yes, that is completely true. But to be completely fair, a lot of times Captain America actually kind of hates America because it's very bad on like actually delivering on those ideals. He criticizes it so much. And I think that's something that... You know, I think a lot of people recognized that sort of thing that I was just talking about, that why is this guy, like, super patriotism also equated with this perfect moral rectitude thing? And, you know, it's sort of a counter to that. Without, you know, changing him being Captain America, they change the link between the symbolism of America and the righteousness of the person who is representing America. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. So, like, okay, obviously those particular ideals are where Cap gets his moral system. Um, I don't think that's actually where Cap gets his moral system. At least, it depends on the incarnation, He talks about them a lot. Although, I will say, again, I think uh, metatextually he was very much influenced by Jack Kirby, who really was so determined to draw a superhero punching Adolf Hitler in the face. And that's, like, pretty much the entire reason that Cap was born in the first place. But I mean... And, like... The Holocaust was not well publicized until I think at least 10 or 20 years after everything was over. But honestly, Hitler's anti-Semitic rhetoric was very clear in his speeches. So Jack Kirby knew something bad was afoot. And he was like, okay, since I can't exactly go over... He did actually go into the military, I think. But he was like, you know, since I can't, you know, punch Adolf Hitler in the jaw myself, I will create a character to do so. So that was very much like standing up to... Nazism was metatextually that sort of influenced Cap's moral code. And I think you kind of see this in First Avenger as well. Although I think it they kind of defanged it to have Cap say that he doesn't want to kill he just doesn't like bullies. That sentiment in and of itself is perfectly valid, but I kind of feel like it sort of defangs the specifically Jewish origin of the character. Possibly. Yeah. I think the thing I don't think they confirmed like I don't think they confirmed like Erskine is like explicitly Jewish either. I think Erskine is pretty obviously Jewish in the movies. But like Jewish coding versus actual Judaism, there's a kind of a difference there. But anyway, go yeah, on. but I mean they don't really explicitly discuss anybody's religion in the franchise anyway. That's true. Daredevil's the exception there. So the thing I think with Captain America is he doesn't get his ideals or his morality from America. He doesn't say like, oh, these are the principles America was founded on, so these are principles I'm going to support. It's like he has his principles almost innately just from his personality and or from his upbringing. It's interesting, I think, that Captain America's family and upbringing is very rarely focused on or discussed in his yeah, stories. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily more like canon or fanon that he's this scrappy little Irish Catholic kid from like 1920s Brooklyn, so like of course he'd be like a flaming radical. I don't know if that's more but, like comics canon or like Tumblr fanon. Honestly, the two kind of lure together in my head at this point. 
Yeah, it is actually interesting, though, that, you know, Superman has his whole raised in Kansas thing. Spider-Man has his upbringing with Aunt May and Uncle Ben. But Captain America's cultural consciousness backstory basically starts when he's trying to join the army and getting rejected. That's a really good point. And I've read a lot of, again, Tumblr headcanning and fanfic that attempts to, like, reclaim his probable, like, 1920s hard scrabble upbringing. And it makes a lot of sense to locate his complete and utter intractability in that. But again, I don't know how much that's necessarily... It certainly hasn't been addressed a lot in the MCU. I don't know about canon. Like, comics canon. Honestly, I think his interactions with Bucky, where they talk about their growing up in Brooklyn, is more than he gets in a lot of his comics. Are you talking about, like, in the MCU? Yeah, in the MCU, it's mostly just some banter in Civil War where they talk about... Right, yeah. And I think some in First Avenger as well. There's a little bit, yeah. And you see, like, a small amount of Bucky and Steve in Brooklyn. At that point, he's already joining up with the army and everything. Yeah, that's true. But I think the interesting thing about Captain America's moral compass is that I don't think in, at least in modern incarnations, it's really shown to be brought on by his belief in America, but that he believes in America because at least the founding principles in theory match up with his personal beliefs in a lot of ways. That's that's true. And I think we kind of see that in First Avenger as well, when he's selected to be the first super soldier specifically because Erskine has that whole thing about a weak man knowing the value of strength and how to not be cruel with it basically. So it's definitely, we do see that in the MCU. There's something inherent to Steve that's separate from any larger national consciousness. And that's why he's specifically chosen to become the symbol that he eventually becomes. Yeah. Okay. So that's all about Captain America. I kind of want to circle back to Batman a little bit. Yeah. And also comparing him with Superman. The flip side of this whole, you know, trope of the hero is the anti-hero. And good lord, there's been such a giant anti-hero boom just in the last 15 years in media lately. Like, Breaking Bad, Mad Men. I don't even necessarily mean anti-hero for Batman. There are some incarnations of yeah. Batman that and are very been, much anti-hero. Yeah, he's been so wildly like reinterpreted that I think in some ways he definitely falls into that trope. Yeah. Um, I think the interesting thing is like Superman is innately a beacon of hope who, you know, functionally always does the right thing and strives for justice and is kind and compassionate and all of that is just, it's not something I mean, it's something he works very hard at, but it's not something that he has to consciously put effort into thinking about the right decision and making the right decision. It's mm-hmm. just kind of who he is and what he does. Yeah. That's true. That's Whereas true. in a lot of incarnations, Batman is somebody who is very much not that in his innate personality and his psyche, but tries very hard to be that. That's a really interesting point. And I think this is something that varies a lot in different interpretations of the character. There are definitely some, you know, like Dark Knight Returns, Batman in the comics, or definitely like a lot of the grittier reimaginings of Batman. Like Nolanverse? Um, Nolanverse, I think, is actually not as much that necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
but there's a lot of interpretations of Batman, especially like the more old school, like classic interpretations, like what you got in the old animated universe with Batman the Animated Series, or in a lot of the more lighthearted modern interpretations, is that in a lot of ways he uses fear. He is threatening and violent and very much unfriendly, but he is still trying to do the right thing and make the right decision and in a lot of the time it's something that he i think struggles with because he has a very strict rule about not killing anyone ever he has villains like the joker especially who are like just mm-hmm. trying to get him to kill and be like hey, you, know me, you should kill me blah 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 yeah which okay, i still might... i still maintain that he should kill the joker and just get it over with yeah like again well, that's a whole, like, a responsibility thing like if yeah, and that's... Um, He's directly responsible for all the Joker has done after he failed to kill him. Anyway, and, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. And that's, I think, a very interesting conversation that I could talk about at length. <laughs> I'm sure. But the thing is, like, Superman doesn't kill people either, but Superman doesn't have some super hardcore rule about it. You know, Superman doesn't have a villain who's trying to get Superman to kill him. He doesn't... Have He's not any... being specifically goaded on that front. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't have, like, some hardcore personal mantra that he has to reinforce to do it. It's just, he's not going to. He doesn't need to. He won't. That's just who he is. Batman, Batman needs that discipline mm-hmm. and that dedication to it. That makes a lot of sense. To not, like, send himself over the deep end of all the crazy nonsense that he is pretty much, I think, in a lot of cases, just constantly teetering on hmm that makes so much sense honestly i read this sentence in some book somewhere about somebody completely different completely unrelated to all this but it's just the best sentence out of context and it goes psychologically speaking he was a complete basket of snakes and i feel like that's just (laughs) such a succinct description of batman judging by how you just explained his mind and his inner workings and stuff. Yeah, you know, like Total Superman, basket of snakes. you know, Superman is a good man who does good. He's a basket of puppies. Oh my god, he is. <laughs> he really is though. But, you know, it's like Superman is a good man who does good and his stories are about like, you know, whether he can do the right good thing well enough. I guess, to simplify Mm -hmm. things immensely. (laughs) Whereas Batman is, I wouldn't say he's a bad man trying to do good. I would say he's a much more conflicted man who is pretty much constantly desperately trying to do good and struggling very hard. He's always worried he won't be good enough. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, yeah, that That is definitely the case. Yeah. I almost wonder sometimes if part of his motivation this is something i'm just coming up with off the top of my head here <laughs> nice. i sometimes wonder if part of his motivation for having kids sidekicks like his various robins and batgirls is mm-hmm. almost a way of keeping himself honest in a sense like huh. it's obviously it's partly like i don't think it's something he would ever consciously do but it's like, oh, okay, this kid wants to help out. I'm going to give him this opportunity to let him and also keep them safe while I do it. I mean, okay, the kid sidekick thing. If you look at it realistically, it's morally pretty shaky. But, yeah, yeah. This one book, but, you know, Poster Children by Kitty Rose, actually kind of addresses that in a really interesting way. 
Like the morality of kids' sidekicks or yeah. lack thereof. But if you just take at face value, Batman has kids' sidekicks because that was just something that was established when people didn't really think about that sort of thing. And we can't really get rid of it now. You know, you could consider that, like, on some subconscious level, Batman is working with these young men and women, and in a lot of cases, basically children, because he wants to put himself in situations where he has to be setting a good example, where he has to have these kids around him so that he knows that there's somebody watching and learning from him so that he's more encouraged to set the right example, I guess. That is really interesting. I feel like we need to do a whole separate episode on bat psychology. Oh, man. Basket of snakes. Once we get through the Arkham games, we have a whole thing we can do on Uh, that. Yeah, definitely. So... I guess we've kind of been circling around this, but I guess maybe the last thing we could really talk about now is the importance of having heroes, these people who consistently do right or try to do right in the Mm -hmm. modern age. Again, with the whole proliferation of anti-heroes and like moral complexity in modern media and stuff, there are so many stories out there where nobody really ever does the right thing or entirely the right thing. So I'm really interested in, I guess, the way that these, I guess, moral bastion heroes function in this sort of like media landscape, but like what larger purpose they serve. Yeah, yeah. Because I've really heard like other people describe characters like Captain America as boring, as like not sufficiently like interesting compared to I don't know Walter White or something like that. So, yeah. Like, well, first of all, if we're going to talk about somebody like Walter White, I would classify him as a villain and not an oh, antihero. I think he starts out as an antihero and then yeah. I mean, I would say like you know, villain. in like a superhero context, you could be looking at you know a character like Wolverine. I mean, a lot of interpretations yeah. of Batman honestly are can be like that. Yeah, and I would um, say and then um, like you could go as extreme as the Punisher. I was going to say Daredevil season two, the early part of it actually I think did this really well in terms of setting the anti-hero against the slightly more traditional hero because yeah it kind of goes back to the whole justice thing we were talking about there's this idea I had that the anti-hero sort of attempts to like their rhetorical purpose can be to try to show that the hero can't function effectively as part of that like three-part justice system because of their principles yeah we can take a step back like Mm -hmm. So the whole, like, anti-hero and, like, hardcore, grizzled, grim, yeah, grim dark figure, like, bullshit, whatever. You know, like, and the dark age of comics, which has a lot of that, is very mm-hmm. much a yeah. reaction to these upstanding, morally upright, virtuous characters who were so saturated mm-hmm. in, you know, especially in, like, the Silver Age, mm-hmm. where... There was a lot of Superman being super great and a lot of stories that were really silly and people usually didn't take them very seriously. Mm -hmm. And then there's that backlash almost that came with stories like Watchmen, I think is probably the most famous example of it. Mm. And there's tons and tons of other examples of it that are varying levels of good 
Yeah, where... and it's like, I have also seen it hypothesized that the rise in anti-heroes or more grimdark tropes were, that was a response to the sort of moral confusion of the Korea and Vietnam Wars. Yeah, I mean, that was... was not fighting righteous wars there, not really, so that yeah, was... Yeah, that was totally something... To that. Yeah, Watchmen definitely t- is tied into that. Yeah, like, there's yeah a and line the Cold in, War as well, the sort of under-the-table... Yeah, like, like, there's this line in Watchmen that says, I didn't say that Superman exists and he's American, I said God exists and he's American. And it's something along the lines like, and that sentence should fill you with this sinking sense of dread, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And that's very much a sort of counter thing to i mean both superman and captain america who are both super upstanding dudes who Mm -hmm. are captain america especially but also superman to a very significant extent heavily affiliated with america yeah and then like we have that backlash that starts in the 80s and i think continues through like in the 90s and in the 2000s we see the fading repercussions of it with you know, Marvel's Ultimate Universe, where everyone except Spider-Man is an asshole. (laughs) And even when it came to something like Nolan's Batman series, which I think is less grim and brooding than a lot of other super dark, super bloody antihero stuff at the time, but is still definitely a darker and almost more importantly, more realistic. I don't know about realistic, but more down-to-earth interpretation than, like, the high-flying, nonsense, Silver Age stories of... Yeah, or, like, the 1960s TV series. Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> no Heaven West. No eyebrows here, ladies and gentlemen. But then, as we kind of move on from that, I think The Dark Knight was actually on the tail end of that darker turn overall. People wanted to see, like, more of the good guys, I think, than the anti-heroes, really. I think yeah, as, maybe I think, you know, I think people, that's something that the current people in charge of the DC Cinematic Universe aren't necessarily getting because I feel like they've just taken only the grimdark parts of Nolan and they thought that was what made Dark Knight a yeah. hit and honestly, they're just running with that. I yeah. feel like that's what's going on there. Honestly, I think that DC very much got the wrong idea from the success of Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns, both of which are very grim deconstructions of superhero stories and i think right now like what's more interesting and kind of what we're talking about now is reconstructions of these positive upright superhero archetypes yeah not whitewashing them of well, their I mean, flaws a lot of them are still white so technically that is whitewashing but anyway i don't on. that's not the kind of whitewashing i, I'm talking I know about. i was making a pointed joke anyways but i think that people kind of got fed up with okay Yes, there's bad stuff out there, we know, but I think there's a positive thing that comes out of seeing that things can be better. And like, I, go ahead. One of the things with Superman is that he, and this is something part of the mission that Jor-El gives him, is be their light, show them what they could be. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah. In a very real sense, it's showing people what doing the right thing looks like and Mm -hmm. even if these people don't exist the ideas that they're acting for and the morals that they have and the reasons that they do the things that they do is all stuff that is something that really exists and something that i think everyone has in themselves to some extent you know none of us are sent from Krypton or injected with super soldier serums. 
But we can all fight in some small way for truth and justice or for using whatever power we have in a responsible way, even if it's not the power you might get from getting bitten by a radioactive spider. Like that one Jewish thing I was telling you about. Um, you are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Yeah, yeah. It all comes back to... The whole great power, great responsibility thing, but exactly. simplified even further, you know, mathematics style. You have great on both sides, so you can cross it out. Power equals responsibility. That was really nerdy. But you see my point, though. Yeah. These characters, a lot of time they are silly and unrealistic, and they are ridiculous and do ridiculous things. And in a lot of ways, that's, I feel like, almost the point. This stuff is fiction. It can't exist. But... At the same time, a little piece of it exists inside all of us. That's really profound. I like that. Yeah, should that be our ending note? It, it, it could be, but I really want to say one more thing. Because um, I was having this thought while you were talking. I wonder... Yes, okay. one-up my... <laughs> I don't know how much I can one-up that, but... Something I was thinking about is that another interpretation I've read as to why Superman took off when he did had this immense popularity in the late 1930s was that Americans en masse kind of wanted somebody to save them from like the Great Depression and all the downtrodden stuff that resulted from that. And Superman was kind of wish fulfillment in that respect. And I, I kept thinking about the birth of the MCU. And I wonder if... The sort of formula, almost, for superhero stories that Iron Man laid out wasn't kind of laying the groundwork for the sort of reemergence of the more traditional hero in the sense that Definitely. things didn't have to be all, like, Nolan-style serious all the time. Ha ha, why so serious? But no, those movies can actually have a good portion of humor in them. Though, in a lot of ways, Iron Man felt like a comic book movie in ways that super serious superhero movies could not. I would it say... had, like, heavy subject matter, like, weapons dealing and stuff like that, but it balanced that with a lot of character development and a lot of humor, and it was just a much more lighthearted movie than I think the Nolanverse movies could ever have been, or, like, even almost the X-Men movies could ever have been, and I wonder I if that, that didn't... I kind of feel like Iron Man almost... Well, DC, in a lot of ways, they took the wrong lessons from the success of Nolan's movies. I think Marvel took some of the right lessons, I guess, in starting out by very much grounding Iron Man in reality. Yeah, and that's the other thing I wanted to talk about, because in a similar way to how Superman in that one interpretation became popular because he was a wish fulfillment character in the age of the Great Depression in that era of mass uncertainty, Iron Man is very much a, I don't know if he's necessarily a hero, I don't think he knows if he's a hero either. He's very much a protagonist for the post 9-11 era. I read this really interesting article once by Jeffrey Johnson. I don't know what university he's affiliated with, but basically talking about like the climate of fear in 2000s era superhero stories in response to 9-11 and the ways in which like villains took like amorphous forms because people weren't necessarily sure who to trust. But I think what Iron Man and Iron Man 2 did was they kind of showed these characters attempting to deal with the consequences of the massively superpowered world that we found ourselves in 
And not even just superpowered in the sense of humans, in the sense of weapons. They were yeah. trying to deal with that. And I, almost I don't know, like I feel like we, they almost got like, that out of their system in a way before Avengers came along and then they could do more funky cosmic stuff. I would describe it as like... I would say that the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man movies were definitely post 9-11, almost. They were more patriotic, more... Yeah, the patriotism got like shoehorned in. There's another interesting article about that. Joseph Summers wrote yeah, that kind of the, became a vehicle for 9-11 catharsis. But Iron Man, I yeah, feel like, was constructed more in response I'm a, to that. Yeah, Spider-Man was post 9-11 in that way. Batman... The Dark Knight trilogy was post 9-11 in the backlash against like the Iraq war and government spying and not Iraq war in particular, but mistrust of the government in the wake of things like the Patriot Act. But I would say like Iron Man and the MCU as it follows are post post 9-11. Okay, I see what you're saying. Maybe they become post post 9-11 I would categorize them like separately as opposed to in the comics the ultimates are very much a post 9-11 thing most of the ultimate universe really is like that I would say okay from what I know of the ultimates universe that sounds like a fair assessment yeah and I think DC has in a lot of cases not quite reached that point where they're able to really like celebrate what makes these heroes heroic and stuff they I kind of did hope. with wonder woman but like, i think that yeah i think wonder past, woman so yeah wonder woman is definitely a good step there and mm-hmm. we honestly should have talked a little bit more about her in the context of this episode but, but i'm also you know, okay. interested in the last character that i had thought of who sort of fit this archetype was shazam aka dc's captain marvel thanks copyright issues aka billy batson who is even more so the morally upright good guy than Superman, if that's even possible, because he is actually just a 10 or 11 year old kid. Oh, that's right. transforms into a very much like Superman, like superhero figure. And I think, A, I am cautiously optimistic for that movie, but I think he's almost a distillation of this entire trope of the moral bastion hero in that he is just an ordinary kid who happens to have these incredible powers and of course he's going to do really good things with them because that's what kids his age would want to do he still has that childlike idealism is that what you're saying yeah and in the end i think that there's something that's very innately relatable about that. Because we were all the little kid once, and what Billy Batson, a.k.a. Shazam, says is that even if we're not all like that now, there was some point in our lives where we all would have put on a ridiculous red suit and done good stuff. And punched a lot of bad guys, that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. It's, I would almost describe it as an inherently human nature thing that some people grow out of it, but I think there's something inside all of us that wants to do the right thing, and I think that these characters are a way of showing how it can be done. That's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at yellinabtsupers, or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling-about-superheroes. You can also visit Whitney's blog at whitneythompson.wordpress.com, where we post our reading lists for each episode. We're now on iTunes, which is exciting, so if you're an iTunes listener, don't forget to subscribe there, and please rate the show and leave us a review. It'll help us in store rankings, and we always love feedback. We're also on Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. 
Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente. You can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.